gospel lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. John, the fifth chapter. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This is the gospel of our Lord. To remind you or to share with you if you're visiting with us today for the first time, last week we started a new sermon series. Uh, it's really going to be seven different, uh, seven different weeks. And we're asking the question, why church? Why now? Uh, you may have heard recently there's a lot of articles about the great de-churching and all the different ways that this can be described. Uh, but essentially, in the last 25 years, 40 million Christians that go to church decided they no longer wanted to go to church anymore. Uh, this is 16% of the American population. It is the greatest shift uh, in any uh, category of religion in American history. Uh, more people have left the church than came into the church through faith during the first Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all of Billy, Billy Graham's crusades combined. So it's a huge shift, and we wanted to ask the questions sort of why. Uh, I said last week, I won't repeat the whole thing, you can go listen online if you want to hear a, a, an extended intro to this, but I'll try to keep saying this, that there are a million good reasons probably to not be a part of an organized religion or a church specifically, uh, but you only really need one sufficient reason to stay. And as I hope we'll see, that sufficient reason we want to set before you is Jesus himself. And that Jesus says he loves the church and gave himself for it and is still at work in it. In fact, it's his body and his bride. And that is the main reason to come. But also, we have an opportunity. If everyone is so disenchanted with the church, what can we do, those of us who are here, to be who we are so that what we do flows out of who we are in our being in such a way that it impacts those around us that are experiencing all sorts of difficulties uh, in their life and a lack of things. And so last week we talked about welcome in a walled world. And this week we want to talk about worship in a disintegrated world. Uh, let me pray and then we will reflect together for a little while. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this time both with me speaking and people listening and inevitable distractions, which are, are fine, but here we are. Would you be the voice talking? Would you be the one that speaks? And would you help us to sit at your feet and pay attention? And when we're distracted, to turn back and to pay attention and to expect that by your spirit, you will speak to us something living and active that is able to open us up and diagnose us and heal us and strengthen us for life in this world. 
We pray that you would give us that gift because you love to do that because you love us and you love this world. And so we pray for this time in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin with just a little bit of an imaginative journey. And imagine uh, if I were to read your literal journals or your sort of mental thoughts this week, take a sampling from the congregation, you might hear some entries that go something like this. Oh, bro, I'm hype. This is happening Friday. I got to work all week. I hate my stupid job, but I am just going to keep my head down. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to get it done because Friday night, you know what's up? Yes. Can't wait. Man, I sure do miss my mom. I wish she was around. You know, I used to make a ton of money, and I looked forward to spending it, but even these days, the things I used to like to do, like go to the farmer's market, I don't know. The apple cider donuts just aren't the same. I don't know. They're not hitting the way they used to 10 years ago. I don't find myself delighting in these things as much as I used to. Oh, my goodness. Did you see how many notifications I got on my Instagram? That one really almost went viral. That's awesome. Wait. I was scrolling for three hours? (laughs) Where'd the time go? My team finally beat those people. Yes, it's awesome. If she says that to me one more time, I swear, this might be it. She will never learn how to speak respectfully to me. What am I even teaching these kids? I'm teaching them how to get a good education so they can make money, so that they can be middle-aged and depressed like me? What? Why am I doing all this stuff again? I could keep going and going, and you'd get a mix of some nice things and some downs. You'd see people doing this and that. But I think in this ordinary life, of course, there is so much to be celebrated, to be thankful for, and so much of it is good, and so much of it is difficult. But I would argue that if you really were to do a journal of all your thoughts this week, mentally or, or physically on paper, the question beneath your questions and feelings and actions and activities might boil down to something like, uh, there's so much that I still love about this life and world, but what? Sometimes I just lose the plot, you know? Like, what's the point? That malaise on a Wednesday afternoon, as it's been called. What am I doing all this for? What's my purpose? Is there like a unifying thread to all of these things in my journal? Is there one ultimate thread of meaning that connects all of this activity? This running to this, running to that, hoping in this, disappointed by that. What is the point of it all? See, last week we talked about we live in a world full of walls and barbed wire and fences. And yet we worship this God who is a God of welcome. And this God of welcome welcomes us, but he asks us to go out and to welcome all people, to tear down walls, to tear down fences, to break through doors that are locked, and to find people and let them know they are welcomed into God's presence through Jesus, that there is nothing that can keep them away if they will come to him. No walls in God's kingdom that way. And this week I want to talk a little bit about the kind of life that we live on, probably a little, as, as a culture, yes, and as people, yes, but a little bit more on an individual level. 
I look at my life and I look at many of your lives and it's, I say it without judgment. I hope it's just being descriptive. I think we live really fragmented lives. A little, you know, piece of this, a little piece of that, a little piece of this thing and I, I'm making a collage of a mood board of what I want my life to look like and yet, you know, we live this way and that way and we don't ever meet it and it's all kind of a collage and mix match anyways. Different than everyone else's. We each have our own mood board. Our lives don't have a sense of all fitting together. We feel disintegrated. I do my work. I do my play. I do my family. I do my politics. I do my service. It just doesn't seem to make sense together. And sometimes it feels like more and more like it's disintegrating the whole world around us. Not just disintegrated, but disintegrating, you know, with our institutions and everything around us, but also just our sense of meaning. We don't have a sense of coherence, of fitting into a meaningful whole. In fact, we're going to talk about worship in a second, but when I first started uh, the Resurrection Clinton Hill congregation, uh, it was 2012, in the years for that, I was, have a mentor still, just a couple churches down the block there at Old, uh, old First, um, at Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, Anthony Trufant, and I remember just being all confused because I was planting this church and I had all these really amazing people and yet they were on average there once a month. I was just like, I don't understand. They don't come to church like at all. Even my most dedicated people don't come to church. And he said, you expect them to come to church all the time? And he was like, you shouldn't have that expectation. He's like, what you should expect, and he's mainly talking about the younger generation. He said, what you should expect is that you and your church and your church service will always be one of about 37 browser tabs that they have open. They just toggle between them. You're not the browser. (laughs) You're just a tab. And that's interesting because I would suggest that we're frenetic, we're fragmented, we're doing lots of things, but what is most meaningful, what gives us purpose, is when what we're doing flows out of our being, our deepest self. And I want to suggest that most of us have lost our center. Not having a center that we orbit around, we're searching for centers everywhere. We end up with sort of multiple nodes of meaning that we kind of run over to and then over this and service this one and service that one. And sometimes they're in conflict with one another. It doesn't always make sense. And so we don't always know why we're doing what we're doing. We stop and like, why was I on this phone for two hours again? I think I went in there to get a recipe. And the next thing I know, I was all mad at my uncle. What are you saying on Facebook? You're just like, what is my life? I, what, what, even I, what have you am I doing? And so if this is true at all, that we are fragmented, that we are more in pieces and not living a coherent, sensible life of wholeness, it might be that Jesus comes to us and asks the question he asked in John 5 to the lame man. Well, I've seen you've been like this for a minute. I do have a question for you. Do you even want to be well? Do you? It's a good question for us too. Are we getting just enough out of this, these exchanges that we're kind of just a little bit up on the top of the heat from other people? And it's worth living still fragmented and exhausted and anxious and busy because I get to, you know, play on the weekends or because I get to own that thing or, or, or because you know, whatever. Or are we like, I'm sick of this. I've been trying, but I can't make myself well and no one seems to be able to help me. In fact, they're rushing into their version of wellness, but I, no one's here for me. Jesus comes to that person and says, do you want to be well? And my guess is, it's easy, you know, sometimes to do us-them language. I'm not doing that this morning, not intentionally. But my guess is that us and our neighbors and our culture, 
the answer somewhere down there is yes, please. I mean, what else could it mean if you don't just think about the fact that the wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? And that's something a little more holistic than just going to the doctor. If I brought in medicine and all that, forget about it, right? It seems proof that people really, really do somewhere deep down want to find out how to be made well, how to be whole, how to live lives of meaning that all they're doing makes sense together. And this is where I do bring in the concept of worship. If you know your English, then this is an old word from old English. It just means worth-ship in English. And it was applied to give to monarchs, especially those sorts of royalty, special people. Um, that's where it came out of the, the Bible because God, especially in the Old Testament, is always king, you know, it's put forth as a, a king and there's all these kings in the Bible. And so you would find someone and you would, you would honor them and reverence them and bow down and show them their worth. You would say that you are so worthy. And I want to suggest that we are always worshiping. You may not ever use that religious word. I would say that we can't not worship, that we were actually made for it, that it's part of how God made us. It's implanted within us that we will seek our well-being. Come hell or high water, we can't not. Even when we're down, we're eventually going to like be on the mat like the man and still say, I look at that water every day and I wait for it to stir up and I run to get healed. I just never make it. We can't not want to be well, to flourish always and everywhere. And so we give ourselves things that we think will make us well. I mean, this is kind of dark, and I've said it before, but I would suggest that even in suicide, this poor, wretched person who makes this choice is seeking a non-being state, they imagine, that will be easier to endure than the one that they're living in. You're always seeking your own relief or healing or well-being. It's a hunger we can't satiate. It's an engine that we can't turn off. We will admire something or someone, or some group, or some nation, or some ideology. We will admire it from afar, desire what they have, and then begin to serve in our lives, work in our lives, in such a way that we move closer to that object that we find desirable. True, good, beautiful, well, whatever. This is why if you go on Instagram, of course, if I see someone has a million followers, I know immediately who it is. It's either a celebrity or, you know, someone that's really beautiful. That's, that's who it's going to be. This is what people want. This is who they want to be. And so we worship, we admire, we honor, we reverence, and then we go about trying to figure out, well, how can I be like them? What, what plan can I go on? And this, this is true. I'm, I went with social media this morning but because it, it's a, a particularly fracturing, uh, you know, disintegrated kind of experience to just go from one thing to another. You know, at one moment you're like, yeah, that's right. I'm so mad about what they did over there. Those people are terrible. And then like, oh, that's cute. You know, <laughs> I think I'll buy this. You know, it's very monkey brain, you know. And so I went with that. But it could be whether it's a business person, you know. The other big thing is uh, how to hack your time and be productive. And there's all these things that we give ourselves to. We serve these things. We work toward being like them. David Jeremiah wrote, your heart's desire, even if you haven't realized it, is to live every moment in the wonder of worship. I'm going to explain what I mean by worship a little bit more in a second. But for now, in the general sense, we're saying what you most want is to constantly be in a state of awe and wonder and to give worth to something. But what do we mean by worship specifically here? 
What is worship going to do in a disintegrated world? Are we talking about this ordinary little service that's happening right now? Yes, and more. First, the yes. Hebrews chapter 10. Saying this to the church. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And even more and more as you see the final day drawing near. Now they're very much talking about what we would call church service, what we're doing here this morning, corporate worship, modeled in this case after the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament sacrificial system. Actually, I could walk through Hebrews and show you all the ways that we interpret it and apply it, and you'll experience this morning, that we are as this thread of meaning that goes from Adam and Eve, actually, through the entire Old Testament into the New Testament and throughout church history. You can see it in the story of our bulletin. You read the headings. God calls us. God cleanses us and so forth. That thread is there and always and everywhere. God's people have been encouraged and welcomed and commanded to not neglect the worship service, not neglect church. Why? Why does worship matter in our lives and in a disintegrated world? Well, so worship in the Old Testament and New Testament, the word is proskuneo and diakonos. And so there's two forms. Proskuneo just means literally to bow down, to give worth to, to honor, to reverence, something that we're not as uh, used to in our culture, being democratic, which is fine. And diakonos, which is like to serve, to go about the work of serving and preparing the table and setting up the bread and wine and to serve one another uh, like busboys and stuff, as we will do this morning. Bow down and serve. As Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. See, if nature abhors a vacuum, so does your heart. And this was back to my point I was trying to make at the beginning. Your heart will center something or someone. That's what's happening when you're trying new centers after new centers. Well, I'm really into this. I'm trying this this year. I'm trying that next year. And sometimes you get a little cluster. And again, sometimes they're at odds with another. You run and try. You can't not try to center something and admire it and be devoted to it and serve it. It's the way we're built. If you are looking for affirmation and acceptance, then you'll be up and down every day based on what that group of people is treating you like in the moment. You'll be right up when they're, I think I made this friend. They seem like a good friend. I think they're going to be my new best friend. It's going to work. And then you get a text message from someone else and you're down in the dumps again. You constantly up and down and fractured and blown about because you centered it on other people's opinion of you. If it's money, same thing. You go up when it's up. You go down when it's down. If it's might or power or influence, same thing. Up and down depending on the whims of the world, if celebrity, acclaim, all these things. And this is the hard part, is we don't naturally, since the fall, center God. And our hearts abhor a vacuum, so we center other things, like a black hole just sucking in everything that might work and never being satisfied. 
And so we're pulled in so many different directions. And on the mild end, this looks like a life of scrolling, right? Literally, but also figuratively. And worse, it can feel like that old and brutal execution technique that they use where they tied someone up to four horses with rope and then sent the horses off in different directions. Sometimes it's really painful to live a disintegrated life. It's exhausting. It's unfulfilling. You under, you forget what the purpose and meaning of your life is. What does it add up to? So you find yourself flitting and anxious. You may remember a story of a woman named Martha who was trying to serve Jesus and many guests. She was trying to serve him, in that sense, worship. But the Bible itself says Martha was distracted with much serving. She became frantic and judgmental at her sister Mary, who was just sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And Martha went to Jesus and said, would you rebuke her? See how she's not helping? And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, he says it twice. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary. And Mary had chosen the better part, that one thing. See, true worship, the power of what we're doing here, the point of what we're doing here is to center God in all things. To center him in all of your life. In all of the faculties that make up who you are as a human being. To center him in our community. And again, to center him in the middle of and above all our other allegiances. Whether they be political or personal or whatever it may be. The way Kierkegaard put it was, purity of heart is to will or desire one thing. So worship in this sense is meant... The service of church is meant to renew our center, to renew our gaze on him, to center our attention, our heart, our mind, our soul, and yes, even our bodies, which is why we have so much bodily activity here in our service. The word integrity, you probably know this. We tend to think, on the one hand, it does mean a person who's honest and does what they say they're going to do. But actually, the other meaning of integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. The state of being whole and undivided. undivided. Jesus wants to give us his integrity. He wants to integrate us, one with another and within ourselves. Think about it this way. One of the Bible scholars of the Old Testament time, when Jesus was there, comes up. He heard, heard people arguing with one another uh, about what was the most important part of the Old Testament and all these sorts of things. So he comes to Jesus and he says, you tell us which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus said, the most important commandment is this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. With all of you. You are to love the Lord your God, who is one, the center of your attention with all of who you are, your whole person. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's no other commandment greater than these. Your body and what you do in your body, you bring in to worship, to bring it to the Lord as the fruit of your life throughout the week. You bring it to him. 
your soul or heart. And at this time, actually, cardia, it had almost the mix of somewhat of what we would think of as like your gut, your intuition, your affections, and also kind of where you, your will, kind of where you make your decisions from. So your heart, you bring that to the Lord to be renewed and to focus on him here. Your mind, right now, you're using your intellect to try to believe the words of God over the voices you hear in your head or in the culture around you. You want to have your mind transformed again and again and be renewed. And with your strength, he says. See, a large part of God's work is to make us whole again. Not only as a broken humanity like we talked about last year, divisions, 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 judgments, exclusivity, and then he brings the world of welcome into this walled world, but also into this fragmented thing where part of the fragmentation is this. Someone who's usually pretty good in their mind decides that that's the most important thing in the whole world and they get really good at arguing and really good at judging and really good at always knowing the right answer and they look down on everyone else who hasn't come up with the perfect little system that they have and the same thing happens with people and their feelings and all these other ones. You take it and you fragment it and you make it more important. You don't accept the whole need of heart, soul, strength, mind. And a large part of God's work in worship is to make us whole again. To become people of integration, of integrity, of all the pieces being put back together. Actually, the root word of the word, uh, the root of the word holy, which we translate through Middle English, is actually to make healthy, to make well, to give well-being, to give what we call, we talked about shalom all summer as this flourishing state, but shalom applied to an individual almost. To make you flourish in body, soul, mind, spirit, relationships, activity, being, doing. To make that all one centered on God and his love and his purpose. Honestly, I know it might sound a little woo-woo, but I think holistic well-being is probably the best modern phrase we have to accurately understand what the Bible means when it talks about growth and spirituality. That we become well in all of these faculties based on the truth and beauty and goodness and love of God. You see, I mean, I could go through, they're not metaphors, they're real things that Jesus did, you know, the people he healed, the care he took to give them sight, to help them be unmute, to not suffer from all sorts of infirmities and mental illnesses. In fact, the word salvation, again, sozo, I didn't realize I wrote down so much Greek in here today, but sozo is this very much a holistic word. It doesn't mean just to get saved, like we walked the aisle and I said yes to Jesus and now I'm saved. It meant making all things shalomed, all things right again, individuals, communities, and the world itself. This is what he is giving us a picture of and an experience of here in worship to make us whole again. In fact, and I think I've only said this once before, but religion, the word religion is from the word religament, you know, to put us back together again. I said yes and, is it just the church service? Yes and. Again, man, my English major came out this week. Cult and culture. You may not know that those come from the same word. The understanding always was, and it doesn't mean cult just in the sense we only think of like diabolical, bad small groups or something. Cult is a place where you worship. That's what it meant, the, any, any kind of worship. A place where there's an altar and a God and exchange. They always understood that culture flowed out of the cult. That what you worshiped, what you centered on, is what you're going to take home. And work out into your lives. What you centered on, heart, soul, strength, and mind in a cult, is what you're going to do when you're busy in your heart, soul, mind, strength at home. And sometimes you have tasks that are very much 
heart and some that are very much, you know, body and some that are very much mind. You're going to take what you're centered on and you're going to work that into the dough of your life like leaven. That is what's going to happen. So again, we've already talked about if you center money, if you center people, you center fame, it's going to work into who you are as a person and what you're working into the world. But if you center God himself through worship, then you have what we call, and this is a big part of our tradition, theological tradition, is ordinary worship, everyday worship, taking the cult out into your life, out into culture. Romans 12 puts it this way. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Present your life, your body, as a living sacrifice. Like you're walking around, not just when they took the animals to the temple and then it was over, there was this experience, but you're out living, in your living, in your doing, You are a walking, living sacrifice. Everything you're doing is like placing on the altar for God. If you don't doubt me, go read the rest of Romans 12. He immediately goes on to talk about the church as a body with many different tasks. And whether you're serving or whether you're teaching or whether you're exhorting or whether you're contributing in generosity, do it as to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. The Bible says whatever you do, whatever you do all day, all week, can be given to God to glorify God as a gift. This flows out of worship into a life of worship. I have two quick illustrations of this. One is from a Zen koan, actually, like a wisdom statement from Zen stuff. I like this little story, though. The story is this. You've probably heard it. A novice comes to the master, the Zen master, and he says, what does one do before enlightenment? What should I do? He said, your job is to chop wood and carry water. So he does that. But one day he asks, well, when I get enlightened, what then? What do we do after we get enlightened? And the master said, you chop wood, you carry water. I think there's something like that in worship. You come to worship and you're you're re-centered and you're reminded and you're renewed. And then you go out and you have to do ordinary things. But that is the job, to go into the ordinary things and to carry this worship out into a life of integrated worship and so that all you do is directed towards the Lord himself. That everything you can do can really matter. And I, I know we've done this. Those of you who've been around, you've heard us. I've done all the list of things that matter from painting and sleeping and praying and playing and changing diapers and doing dishes and all of these things. It's really important that you understand that those things can glorify God, be given as sacrifices to him. I know for me, I learned, I became a Christian sort of in high school and then in college, and I was a young life leader, so I was giving all my time as a volunteer to lead in this ministry and neglecting my studies. And I met someone who's in the tradition that we're in now, and one day he rebuked me, and he said, man, you're getting really bad grades, but you're a smart guy, and you're volunteering your time to do this young life thing, which is a spiritual thing, and that's great. But I do know that you're called to be a student because you're here. You enrolled, and your parents are helping you pay for this, and so you can glorify God by studying hard and getting your mind in shape and getting as good grades as you're possibly able to get. And that was a total surprise to me, that I could glorify God through getting as good grades as I could and really studying well and trying to learn. So we are meant in our body, in our mind, in our feelings, in our relationships, in our spending and possessions, in our work and vocation, our times and our treasures. Jesus wants all of you. The kingdom of God is not just something to be accepted at some point later, but something to be entered into now. 
in your life, in your studies, your child rearing, in the authorities you have to obey, whether they're parents or police or teachers, whether you're riding or exercising, taking care of your body, all of these things can be ways to glorify God. And I'm going to close with just a long description of how this works from, or not long, just a, a few paragraphs of a description for how this works. There's a, a guy named Douglas Christie. He's re, he wrote a long book that I'm reading. It's called The Blue Sapphire of the Mind. He describes the first time he went to a Benedictine monastery where he was going to learn what's called contemplative prayer. He's like, I've never done it. I've only ever you know, done certain kinds of prayer, and so I wanted to see what their lifestyle was like, and I also wanted to spend a lot of time praying. He kind of imagined they would spend all this time in silence, and he was surprised that they had a nice little back and forth and ebb and flow of word and silence. So it was kind of like take it in the word and then like work it out in silence into your life as you meditate. He's like, that was interesting. Then I realized how much work they did. We spent a lot of time in the fields. Uh, we'd go from the little chapel into the kitchen, into the fields, back to the chapel, in and out. And so he described that, and I just want you, I think this is really beautiful, and it describes better than I can how this works out for you or how it could work out for you. This is the rhythm of ora et labora, prayer and work. St. Benedict, like the desert monks before him, long ago recognized that contemplative practice must be embodied. It must avoid the dangers inherent in an exclusive or extreme emphasis on prayer alone, or worship in this sense. He's like, this is why the monastic day is structured around an alternating rhythm of work and prayer, time spent in the church or cloister, and time spent working in the fields or orchard or kitchen or library. The Apostle Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing is to be realized in the monk's life, not through an exclusive attention to prayer at the expense of everything else, as if prayer were a discrete and disembodied reality, but through a deft interweaving of the mundane elements of daily living into the space of contemplative awareness. And this is what I really like, how he describes how that felt like. During those days I spent at the monastery, as I moved back and forth between the church and the fields beyond the church, I found myself increasingly aware of moving within a larger whole that included the sound of the creaking wooden benches of the monastic choir, the monks' work boots scuffling along the linoleum floor of the church, and voices raised in prayer, also fragrant incense, the faint winter light streaming in through the windows, as well as the long rows of prune and walnut trees, the slow-moving Sacramento River at the edge of the monastery grounds the distant sound of a train whistle, bird song in the early morning, the glint of light shining off the water tower, also the longings hidden within the hearts of all of us gathered in that place. The longer I was there, the more difficult it became to discern the precise boundaries of the contemplative awareness within which I moved and through which I now perceived the world. And this difficulty I began to see revealed an important truth that all of these elements are indeed woven together as part of a larger whole. I did not fully grasp the utterly integrate, integrative sacramental character of this experience at the time, but I began to intuit even then that here was an approach to living that was whole and undivided. There was no inner life, outer life, but simply a life lived in the presence of God in which everything was included, nothing excluded. Does that sound, if that could be true of your life, your actual ordinary life in its embodied details? Does that sound like purpose and meaning? Do you think if that were on offer to the world that there wouldn't be streams of people saying, let me try it out? That sounds interesting. And so the question for us is, will we be a people of worship in the gathered sense, but also in the scattered sense of our lives? Will we allow the Lord to 
begin to weave the details of our lives into one beautiful whole, a tapestry of redemption and love. Worship is what will make you and me whole again. Worship can heal this disintegrated world. The only remaining question then is this. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.